Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. They spend 400 years growing and then also they have, to, they have to be kicked out of Egypt. They have to be so fed up with what happened in Egypt that they would leave and go what God wanted them to do. And so God allowed them to be taken in as slaves of Egypt. And then God then removed them from that space and took them out and brought them to the land of Israel. And they said, we don't want the land of Israel. It seems too hard. And so God said, okay, we've got 40 more years to finish out <laughs> this work. Takes them back into the desert, prepares them, prepares that final generation to go in and to take over Israel, they conquest Israel. They take over the land that God had prepared for them to be his representatives on earth. And then God gives them what they asked for, which is a kingdom, a kingdom of men. He brings Saul, who will be this handsome, tall king who will make terrible decisions. And then God saves them by bringing David, this shepherd king who will care for his people. And then God gives them Solomon who will foolishly ruin the kingdom and allow it to be split by his sons. We have this divided monarchy under Israel and Judah. And it it doesn't even last that long. Israel will be taken captive by Assyria and taken into captivity and never exist as their own people again. They will be sucked up into the Assyrian people. And Judah then will fall to Babylon. And then the exiles after 70 years will return to Israel and rebuild a little little tiny community that will be the remnant that God will rebuild his people upon. And that's where we left off last week. So 35 minutes and 7 minutes. So we're getting faster. Um, now, we, we fall into this, there's a 400-year period in between this intertestamental period, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We think of it as like a, a time of silence, a time of preparation. But this is not, <clears throat> this is not a, uh, a quiet time in, in world history, if you know anything about world history. Um, I, I like to think of it, as, it's like the time between episode three and four of Star Wars, where you understand what happened before, but you, you don't really get into the story, you're just kind of waiting, and the, the Clone Wars happens, which is important, but it's not a part of the story, it's, a, it's outside of the story. Um, so that's kind of what's happening here, but what's happening is you have the beginning and the end of the Persian Empire, the beginning and end of the Assyrian Empire, the rise and fall of Greece and Macedonia as a world empire under Alexander the Great, and then under his lieutenants and governors who will split up the Greek empire into six empires. And then you have the rise and fall of the Roman Republic. All of that happens over 500 years, which is just an absurd time. Like there's this massive upheaval in the Middle East where there's, there's emperor after emperor after emperor who will rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. 
landing with the greatest emperor who will oversee the longest lasting empire of all of history, which is Augustus Caesar. And right after Augustus Caesar is put in place and this Roman Empire is established through his reign, what we see is that God wants to take that very moment. It's, uh, it's a lot like your, your friend has a birthday party and the day before you decide to throw a big party at your house and it has nothing to do with your friend's birthday, but all of your friends then have to decide, am I going to go to two parties in a row? Or am I going to go to one party? And am I going to go to neither party? And that's what, Jesus, that's what God's doing with Augustus Caesar, where he's, he's establishing his reign over like what will be a thousand-year reign of Rome. And God wants to steal Augustus Caesar's thunder. And so we have the birth of Christ. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This will be the first coming of Jesus, the Advent. And, and we spend a lot of time every year focusing on Advent over this next month. But it's a kind of an, an anti-kingdom, the, the ironic kingdom, if you will. And this is, where, this is where we need to focus in on the story. Everything that comes before this is, I, I, I wrote this word here, and it's, it's really annoying, but it's right here. Uh, everything before this is prolegomena. Everybody say prolegomena. Prolegomena. What is that? It's basically a very long introduction. <laughs> that's, that's what that is, okay? And everything of the Old Testament is basically one long introduction setting the stage for this moment because this moment is where the story really takes off. You know how like, like beautiful, incredible stories always start off slow? Did you ever notice that? Like the, the, the best stories have the slowest ramp up. Um, I always think of like the Godfather, like the first half of Godfather one is like really slow. And you're like, why am I watching the story of these 1940s Italian Americans? And you're like, what is going on? And then all of a sudden the story ramps up. This is that moment where we're getting out of the world building, the setting of the story, and we're getting into, okay, the rising action. What is happening in the story? And the Old Testament is, is so vital. And and we're probably going to spend more time over the next couple of years in the Old Testament to understand all of the history and what Jesus is doing and how God is, is working history towards his ends. But, but it all points to this moment. And, and this is why we're followers of Jesus and we're not merely sons of Abraham or want to be sons of Abraham. The kingdom of God is initiated with Jesus and what we all need and what we're all hoping for starts here with Jesus. So, so the advent is a proclamation that the king of creation has arrived on the scene. Jesus, the seed of David, the shepherd king, to, re to reclaim his rightful throne over not just Jerusalem, Judea, or Samaria and Israel, but as king and Messiah, salvation, sa savior over all of creation. So when Jesus shows up, it's not just a proclamation of this religious leader, but the story itself that we're going to read every single year about the advent of Jesus is a story of good news. And we looked at this at the very beginning. When we talk about good news and the proclamation of the good news, it was almost always before Jesus used to speak about what? You guys remember? How was that word used before Jesus came along when we were talking about euangelion, good news? You've been conquered. 
or you did the conquering. The good news is we've won the war. And a, and a herald would, so battles were almost always fought out in the fields outside of the city because you didn't want to be under siege. So you'd meet them out at the field, and then a herald would run to you and tell you if you won or lost the war so that you could know, do we need to get ready for a siege, or do we need to hit the road and get out of here because we're going to be overrun? So the good news of Jesus is that the king has come, and the war has been won. This is the good news of Jesus. And when we're talking about Advent, it's in, it's in contrast to Caesar. Caesar had all of this pomp and circumstance around his Advent. When he would come into a new city, they would put on what they would call an Advent, which was a giant celebration of his coming, where they would declare that he was the Son of God. Julius himself had been turned into this... Um, this God figure in the Roman pantheon. And Augustus, who was his adopted son, was called the Son of God. And so Jesus is coming in as this anti-advent, the proclamation of the anti-Caesar, this humble servant, shepherd king, arrives on the back of a donkey, born in a barn, and threatened, threatening the counterfeit kings of his day. This is the story of Jesus showing up. He is threatening the counterfeit kingdoms of his day. And we see that right away. Herod feels that. Where if, there, if there's a savior, this Messiah, this king that they've been waiting for that shows up, the Hasmonean dynasty that Herod represented would be threatened by a true son of, of David. And then when he was 12, he showed that he was ready to take his place among the Sanhedrin. Jesus, when he went to the temple as a young, uh, very young man, just at the time of his bar mitzvah, he's teaching the leaders of the Sanhedrin through his incredible wisdom. We see that he belongs as the one who will bring God to the people. But we'd have still have to wait 18 more years for the world to accept his message. And then we move into the next phase of the story, not just the advent of Jesus, but the ministry of Jesus. Jesus went throughout Matthew 9, all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. There's two parts to the kingdom of God. There's the rule and reign of his kingdom coming in power through his reign over all creation. And there's also the taste and the the, the redemption of his kingdom that comes through healing and freedom. They're always together. We proclaim the kingdom has come through Jesus, and then we demonstrate it with this work of restoration of the world around us. And we've probably spent more time here than anything over the last seven years, and, and we're going to come back to this at the end today. But this is where we're going to find the gospel according to Jesus is the life and the ministry of Jesus, the culmination of all of history in this one life, and then ultimately in one single act. We don't just celebrate Jesus because he is a, an incredibly moral human being. He's, he's seen across the world as the definitive character upon which to model our lives. In every culture on earth, if you ask them who are the greatest humans to ever live, Jesus shows up in their top three. Across all of the world, they're going to say Jesus is this radical example of what it means to be a moral human being. But he's not just a moral human being. He's also not just the incarnation of God's presence in the world. 
Now, this is an important piece of what Jesus is, but he's not just that. He's not just a representative from God or a representative of God's presence. God himself is going to make his presence known throughout all of creation, but he's not just a good moral human. He's not just the incarnation of God, and he's not just a good teacher. Now, almost everybody on earth will tell you Jesus is one of the greatest teachers who ever lived and that his teachings are still impacting billions of people today. He was a great teacher, but he wasn't just a great teacher. And we don't just celebrate Jesus because he's the son of God even. But all of these parts fit together to form what will become the most important thing that happens is that we celebrate and we yearn for Jesus because he came proclaiming this story, this one promise and this one fulfillment of history. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus goes about proclaiming the gospel. He says, the time promised by God has come at last. This is something that they have been waiting for from the beginning. From, from Genesis on, they've been waiting for God to come and set things right. The time promised by God in all of those prophecies and all of those oracles has finally come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is here. It is near. Now, that both those words are true, but he's, he's basically saying the kingdom of God is upon you. It is, it is with you right now. It is breaking in. Jesus' presence is the beginning of the breaking in of God's kingdom in this world. And then he says, this is, this is the response of the good news. Repent of your sins and believe this good news. Now, what's the good news he's proclaiming? The kingdom is here. The good news is that the king has showed up. The good news is that the kingdom is breaking into this world. Is the good news that you're going to be saved from your sins? That's actually not the good news. I hate to break it to you. That, that's been told to us year after year, time after time, that the good news is that we're free from sin or the good news is that we get to go to heaven. No, the good news is that God's kingdom, his reign and rule over all creation is breaking in now through the very presence of Jesus on earth. The time is here. The kingdom of God has come. But has it come, when Jesus says that the kingdom of God, the time has come for the kingdom to come, what is he describing? Because is Caesar still ruling with an iron fist across most of the Mediterranean? Yeah. That doesn't change. Is death and disease still, I mean, the, the average lifespan at this point is like 30 years old. Is, is, is disease being, being eradicated? We, we see at this time that there's still a massive proportion of the population. The estimates are all over the place, but a massive proportion of the population that has been enslaved. Long-term enslavement as these vanquished people are taken over by the Roman Empire, they're brought in as slaves. Have the slaves been set free when Jesus is proclaiming this? The answer is not yet. No, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is right among us. The kingdom is starting to break in. But we, what we have to think about with this sort of kingdom is that the kingdom of God is not going to come in this time 
like a mighty army. The kingdom of God is an insurgency. The kingdom of God is a rebel force that's breaking in and winning hearts and minds. The kingdom of God is moving like yeast through bread, working its way into every part of creation. The kingdom of God is its a lot like a zombie invasion. <laughs> you, do, you don't know who has it till they show it, right? It's, it's, like, it's like a virus that breeds through the host of people. It's, it's like a kingdom in exile who has, I always, I always think about Bonnie Prince Charlie, and I think I've used that before. He's, he's this Catholic king, the son of, the grandson of Mary, Queen of Scots. I'm trying to, my brain isn't quite there yet. But uh, he, he is hoping to reestablish a Catholic rule over England and Scotland as, as the rightful heir of the throne. But where is he living? He's living in Paris because he is a threat to the throne. And if he goes to England, he will either have to pledge loyalty to his cousin or he will be killed. And so he sits in exile in France. But what's happening in Scotland and in England? There's tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who are loyal to Bonnie Prince Charles, who are hoping and waiting for him to take his rightful place upon the throne of England. Now, those who put their hope in Bonnie Prince Charles put their hope in a false savior, a false kingdom, one that would never come to fruition and at the Battle of Culloden would end all hopes of an independent Scotland and a Catholic kingdom over England. But the kingdom of God is an exilic kingdom that continues to be at work, working its way through all of creation. The kingdom is coming in power. It starts with the fulfillment of this covenant in Christ, that all those who are in Christ would join God's family and join his kingdom. And so anytime someone says, raises their hand and says, I'm in with God and I want to be a part of his kingdom, his little kingdom grows within the kingdom of this world. It's coming in power now through the presence of the Spirit. Now, now we haven't got to the part of the story, but Jesus is going to die. Spoiler alert. He's going to be resurrected. Spoiler alert. And then the Holy Spirit's going to come upon all of those who have put their faith in Jesus. And the Spirit's filling in the followers of Jesus is going to give us the power to overcome this world. It's going to give us the power to create little enclaves of kingdom life like this little community where we gather. You see, the kingdom of God is going to come in its fullness at the end of time, and that is the good news that the kingdom of God is breaking in and that it's going to have its day where all things will be set right. But the kingdom work of Jesus is setting into motion this inevitable end game where God will do what? Well, let's take a look. What's next? Jesus had received the sour wine, and he said, it is finished on the cross. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. This Jesus, who would be the Son of God, who would establish the kingdom, all hope was lost in his death, but that wasn't the end. The kingdom comes in power in the lifetime of the disciples, just as Jesus promised. Miracles are unleashed. Freedom from sin and death. Freedom from the broken sins of this world. Jesus himself casts out the powers of darkness from the lives of people around him. There's these new, new outposts of kingdom reality popping up where his people start to gather. And Jesus' death, 
is the beginning of the kingdom's true coming to power. They had been waiting for a sacrifice that would cleanse them, that would free them from the power of sin. And Jesus' death provides this once and for all sacrifice for our sins. They had been waiting. Israel was draped in shame. Why were they draped in shame? Why were God's people draped in shame? Because they had not fulfilled the covenant that they had made with God. Over and over again, they said, we're going to go our way and we're going to do our own thing. And so all of the people of this world are draped in shame because we have not fulfilled our covenant. Now, when we don't fulfill our covenants, you you guys probably don't feel shame because we live in a shameless kind of world. Um, But in in the ancient days, they felt lots of shame because they knew that they were out of covenant with God. And so Jesus himself, what we see is that all of our shame is heaped on him on the cross. He takes on our shame so that we can restore our right relationship with the Father. And so his death on the cross creates this opening. All of our shame is heaped on him. Um, One of the the scriptures describes it as if um, in in the ancient Hebrew um, festivals, they would cast all of the shame of the people upon a goat who would then be sent out from the people as what we call what? The literal scapegoat, okay? Jesus himself is the scapegoat, the one whose our shame would be cast on him so that we could remain in right relationship with God. His death took on the cost because our sin and our brokenness and our destruction requires justice And so all of us are deserving of the kind of destruction that we heap on this world. That's how we think about justice is if I create destruction to you, then something will be taken from me. And Jesus himself said, I'm going to take on the punishment, not just the shame of what you've done, but I'm going to take on the very punishment itself, and I'm going to be destroyed for your destruction. And so his death is the substitution for our destruction. And then after he dies, he breaks open the gates of Hades and Sheol, this place of the dead where those who had gone before, and says, you're no longer bound to the powers of this world, but now you can belong to God. And he, he preaches this good news. Jesus continues to preach even, like you'd think he'd get three days off during this death, like he'd get some time to himself. But no, he goes and he, he preaches to the dead and he says, The good news has come. The kingdom of God is breaking in. Come and join the kingdom of God with me. And then he preaches to these sleeping spirits and announces the kingdom in the depths of Sheol. And many who died before and after Christ are going to find newness in life through this resurrection power of Jesus. And the good news of Jesus is that there is a resurrection where the kingdom of God will overcome the kingdom of death and Jesus will reign with all those who choose life. And this is the moment in the story where we everything slows down, almost stops in slow motion. Where all those who had put their hope in Jesus felt like there was no hope. But in reality, the hero was going to be reborn when all hope was lost. In the hero's journey, this is the climax of the rising action where everything hinges on this perfect outcome. Gandalf is reborn after his battle with the Balrog as Gandalf the White to win the final battle at Helm's Deep. Anakin, after giving up his own life to save his son, 
is reborn into this spirit world. Harry Potter suffers the second killing curse of Voldemort, only to be reborn and overcomes the powers of darkness with new life. Aslan returns after the sacrifice to lead the army of woodland creatures to victory. I, I got story after story. We keep going. Do you want me, <laughs> you want me to keep going? I, got, I, can, I can keep going. No, that's right. There's so many stories of this moment happening where all hope is lost because the hero has been destroyed, but only to find the life that will bring life to all. It's not a, it's not a coincidence that we're drawn to the story. It's the hope of all creation. We're drawn to these stories because they are preternatural to humanity, the sort of origin stories that we have ached for for all times, a Savior who will come and set all things right. And this is the really important part for us. He does it on our behalf. Jesus doesn't come and die and rise again for himself. He does it so that we might live. He does it so that our own death will not be the end. The work on the cross was not the whole story. But in some ways, it's where we've gotten the story so wrong. The cross and the resurrection isn't everything. Actually, if you look at history, we didn't use the cross as a symbol of Christianity until almost 300 years after Christ's death because that would have been weird to them. <laughs> like the, the cross was seen as this symbol of, it was, it was a symbol of the brutality of the Roman Empire and their ability to use coercive power of violence to get their way. And so in, in this ironic twist, Christians take it on as a symbol of our power over death. But the cross and the resurrection is not the whole story. It's like a gateway. The opening, this, it, it's like we, we've been, in, we've been in, in a prison of our own making. We've been, we've been in this walled prison and we, the, the only way out is by the gateway of the cross and Jesus' work on the cross and then the resurrection as a way to move forward into new life. It's this opening where we can find the opportunity to break free and experience the incredible freedom in God's kingdom that we were meant to have. And so the cross isn't everything. It's the start of everything. And we, we've talked a lot about resurrection because we've wanted to recenter the gospel from a gospel of death to a gospel of life, from a gospel of destruction at the cross to a gospel of resurrection power. And it's such an important part of the story. But, but even when we talk about the resurrection, we, we talk about it the wrong way a lot of times. The resurrection of Jesus is not merely a means to an end for us followers of Jesus. Like, we, we've, we've, we've thought about it as, well, he was resurrected, so now we can be resurrected. Have you ever thought that? Like, Jesus' resurrection was just so that we could get resurrection? It's not just a means or an end for us followers of Jesus to be forgiven and belong in the kingdom. But the resurrection power of Jesus is the new beginning for the kingdom of God. It's starting to come into its fullness. It means that we have access to this power that brings and sustains life through the healing and transformation of the body, just like Jesus. It means that we have freedom from the powers of death and destruction in this world. We aren't under their rule and reign anymore. Do you know what that means for us? If we live under the rules of the world of death and destruction, then our bodies are always cursed, and we have no power to overcome 
sin and death. But under the resurrection power of Jesus, all of a sudden we have power to participate in the life of Jesus. It means that we, we, have, we have freedom to not let them rule and reign over us anymore. And here's the thing. If, if death can't kill you, if death is not the end, if you're no longer afraid of what's coming at you, what power does this world have over you anymore? If there is resurrection for the dead, if there is freedom from the brokenness of this world, if there is an opportunity for us to experience the kingdom of God, once we've stared death in the face and said, you have no hold on me, you can live with a sort of radical abandon. And all of a sudden, the sacrifice to live in the way of the kingdom feels like nothing because what are we going to give up? We're going to give up worthless things in this world to gain something of eternal value. We can live with radical generosity because it, it feels like nothing when the stuff that we own is just a mere trifling to the kingdom that God offers us. And when we experience losses, they're only, they're only temporary setbacks rather than defeats. Because when I lose somebody here, I know it's not the end. I know that there's hope for what's to come. When we stare down a horrifying diagnosis, we can say with certainty, this is not the end of my story. When we're faced with death and dying, we no longer have to live in fear. We can live with power. And when the world persecutes us and says all kind of things about us because of our faith, we can say their words, their words have no power over me because this is not the end of the story. Um, I, I hang out with a lot of you, and I, um, I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of us are kind of like hitting middle age all at once. And uh, anybody here feeling any sort of like existential angst or crisis? Yeah, you can raise your hands. Because what happens is, like, you hit 40, and you're faced with your mortality. You're closer to the end than the beginning. This existential crisis of death is coming. What, are, what am I going to do about it? I've got 35 more years of life. How am I going to spend it? Now, you're, you're starting to have some existential angst now, as I'm talking about I can see. But all of a sudden, middle-aged existential crises... Time is spinning faster and faster. What are we going to do with it? Instead, I can face it and say, death has no power over me. This life is not my only life. This is just the beginning. I can stare down my pain and my angst and say, God is not finished with me with this body. All of a sudden, I can, I can grow and be transformed in this life because I'm preparing for a future where I belong with God in his kingdom. Did you guys know that you're, you're getting ready for what's to come? Like this life is a, is a space where you're growing into a person who belongs in God's kingdom and that that growth is going to continue on after death and that you're going to continue to have to be shaped into something that belongs with God. Do you guys know that? Like that's... That's the work that we're doing now is to prepare to be with God. And so I can see this now, this work that I'm doing, it's not just temporary, but it pays dividends for the life that's to come. It means, the resurrection means that we have access to the power to be changed from the inside out. 
so that we no longer participate in the destruction and suffering that we used to bring into this world. You see, this is the real kingdom's power in our world, is that you and I no longer participate in the work of destruction of the kingdom of darkness. You and I have been redeemed. Each of us, when we pledge loyalty to Christ, our lives are being transformed so that now we bring with us life and hope and courage and someone who can suffer in the face of darkness and still bring joy and life to the world around us. The good news of Jesus is really good news, and it's important that we get the story straight. So when Jesus says, the time has come for the kingdom of God, repent and believe, there's some really important things happening in this good news of Jesus. He's making a claim about his place in the world, overall creation as creator. He's making a claim about his power, saying that he has the right to do whatever he wants with all of creation, and he has the power to do what he wants and desires. When he proclaims the kingdom's coming, he's saying that his presence is breaking into this world, both with his coming, with the Holy Spirit's coming into the world, and then with his second coming. And so we're going to frame all of history around the singular event of the incarnational Jesus, and with it comes an invitation. This invitation is the beginning for us. Before the kingdom of God comes in power, if you want to be a part, it takes one act. That act is not an act of prayer. That act is not some special words that we're going to say. It's to pledge our allegiance to the coming king, to put ourselves under his reign and rule and authority, marking us as someone who belongs in the new creation that's to come. We're going to talk some more about that here in a minute. Oh, crap, it's 1014. Okay. <clears throat> We're gonna, the rest of history, it's, on, it's only thousands of years. I'll go quick. So we have the early apostolic era. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You remember my witnesses in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. We see explosive movement of God's kingdom taking new ground after the resurrection and Pentecost when his spirit comes on his people. We see God transforming people's lives. We see the power of God transforming families' lives. We see the power of God transforming nations. We see the gospel preached and new communities growing from India to England to Ethiopia in a single generation. The, the gospel breaks free and transforms spaces that would have never been imagined. They think, historians think that over 300 years, 20 million people are following Jesus by the time Constantine makes it the legal religion of the Roman Empire. John 14, we see Jesus tell us this. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me is going to do the same works that I've done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. And you can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, <clears throat> ask me anything in my name and I will do it. And then the end of the apostolic age in 90-ish A.D., we have the death of John, the last apostle, and the beginning of what will become a worldwide movement of Jesus' followers. And this is just the beginning. We read in Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God 
and the testimony of Jesus. This is the beginning of the next part of the story. The next 2,000 years, we're going to see this small movement is going to grow in these little enclaves and fits and starts with persecution and death till 300 AD, and then a global movement is going to be birthed out of the, the sending of the people. And this isn't even the end. The, the work is to get not just get the kingdom of God and the proclamation of the kingdom of God to the people, but it's rather for us the work is getting the kingdom into the people. Can I get an amen? The work is not proclaiming the gospel. The work of, is getting the kingdom into the people. And so we see the kingdom, it's breaking in unevenly throughout creation. Am I right? It's not, it hasn't happened everywhere. Our work <clears throat> is to keep taking and retaking space for the kingdom through the faithful presence of an exile community of refugees. Our waiting is not going to be in vain. And Jesus left his disciples with this promise in John chapter 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that weren't so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. You see, he was preparing a way. Christ's return is imminent. That means it's not happening right now, but it, it will happen with certainty. No longer is there going to be anything accursed, but when Jesus returns, the throne of God will have him, Jesus, the lamb, and his servants will worship all around him. We will join in this worship. We're going to see his face, and in Revelation 23 it says, his name will be on their foreheads, that night will be no more, they will need no lamp of no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. This is not hypothetical. It is actually happening. And what you're going to see is that there's these foolish so-called prophets and Bible teachers who are going to peddle garbage about their assurance that they know when the last hour is. Honestly, as soon as a pastor tells you that they know that the second coming is coming, turn them off, never listen to them again. They don't know, and they're lying to you when they tell you that they know. They're lying to you when they tell you that they've read all the prophecies and they understand them. They don't know. Even Jesus himself doesn't know that last hour that's going to come. And what should our posture be as we're waiting for this second coming, the fulfillment of, of our hope? Well, we need to have patience. Like God, we should, des we should desire that none should perish and that all would be saved. And so we're going to be patient because the end means some will be judged and left out. And so we, God himself is holding out as long as he can. We should proclaim the kingdom's coming. We should tell the world the king has come. His reign will be over everything. Join in it. And we should celebrate where we see the kingdom breaking in around us the partial, unfulfilled, hope-filled moments where we see the kingdom of God coming. But hold on, there's more. We're not at the end. <laughs> there's a new heavens and a new earth coming. Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the consummation of all things, the joining together of heaven and earth under God's rule and reign. And it begins with a giant wedding feast. 
This is the beginning of the age of the kingdom fullness where we're going to reign with God and where we're going to work alongside God in this city garden and discover the ways of God and the delight of God and the design of God for all of eternity. We're going to bring God's beautiful vision for creation flourishing to be what it was meant to be. And that's the story. I did it. It only took an hour and a half. We've reached what we know of God's redemptive history to create, redeem, and restore all of creation under himself. And the question for us is, what are we going to do about it? This is all within the good news of Jesus. This message we've been unpacking for, for weeks is we proclaim the kingdom until he comes. the response that we need to have when we see the kingdom of God proclaimed to us. It's real simple. The king is coming. What are you going to do about it? The king is coming. The king's rule and reign will be established. All of creation will be subject to him. Are you going to rebel against the king of creation? Or are you going to join in? the wedding feast of the Lamb? Are you going to join in the way of life? Are you going to experience his power and his goodness overcoming your life? And what, what we're going to do now, before we take communion, um, I think the band's going to come up. Is that? I, we, we had a discussion. I, I think they are. Yes, they are. Um, the band's going to come up. They're going to play a little bit. And I'm going to give you guys a few moments to think about it. But this is just one of those steps along the way. When Jesus says, repent, of your sin and believe the good news. Repentance means we're turning away from all of our other loyalties. We're turning away from the kingdom of this world. We're turning away from the king who's on the throne of our hearts, which is who? Me. I'm going to take myself off the throne of my life. And I'm going to pledge my loyalty to Jesus and allow his kingdom to rule and reign over my life. And that starts with one act of humility, which is to kneel and bow before God and say, you are my king. I will have no other. I will not share my loyalty with a nation, with a tribe, with a political party. I won't share my loyalty even with my family. My only loyalty is to the king. And everything else is subordinate to that. This is the beginning of your walk with God is when you pledge your loyalty to Jesus and you set your direction saying, I'm going to allow him to shape every part of my life and I'm going to allow his kingdom to rule and reign in my life. And this is when we start to be transformed in the kingdom. And so I'm going to invite you, like while they're playing, uh, take some moments to pray and prepare. And then if, if you'd like and if you have space, in your seats, I'm not sure. If you have space, you can even kneel down and bow your head before God and pledge your loyalty and your fealty to the one true king over all creation. And then when you come forward and receive communion after you've done this work in your heart, that's what communion means. You're saying, I, I participate in the work of Jesus, his work on the cross to create space for me to belong to him. And I pledge that his body and his blood is the only sacrifice I'm going to need. 
I'm not going to ask for anybody else to sacrifice for me. I'm not going to look to the world to give me life. I'm not going to look to myself to be Lord and King. When I take part in the communion, I'm saying, I'm going to allow Jesus to shape every part of me. Are you ready? Are you ready to give your life over to Jesus? Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.